Hello there and welcome to episode 70 of Right Where You Are Sitting Now, the podcast for the site sittingnow.co.uk. 70, it's a big number. Yep, Oz and Ahigo Torso, it's a, um, quite an important number in the Kabbalah and that, that gives a bit of a hint, a bit of a hint of this uh, this week's exciting episode. It does, we are returning to to Crody land in in some ways. Uh, well, I don't in, think in, we ever leave it, do we? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's true, it's true. Um, But yes, um, our guest this week is uh, Mr. Trevor Gray, and he's a a, a more recent author, but an experienced occultist, we should say. Um, Oh, yeah, and uh, with with fascinating links with various um, cult organisations and a person I understand of of rank in those, so, you know, I could good representative of of, that, of certain fraternities and what would, you, like what would you say we're talking about today then mark well i mean uh well he's written a number of, well a few books a number of books to his name mr gray and uh for one for in particular is uh from manhood to godhead which uh the basic premise is a witch is uh, it's a sort of narrator sort of uh, reincarnates for a number of different um, incarnations all based and each incarnation sort of explores or tries to explore in some sense the uh, cataplistic tree of life so um, and that's charged with the the cover of which is charged with the Hierophant card a, a revealer of sacred things uh, and uh, so you know Mr. Gray is well placed for that and the 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 the, uh, the figures we encounter are ones we've touched on before and so we reintroduce some new some familiar through the mist of time the uh, the shades of count cagalistro saint germain the knights templar paracelsus the great paracelsus the alchemist and um, and of course crowley right towards the end and uh, yeah it's a very rich very rich read, very rich. He's also written a more recent book called A Whisper in the Silence, um, which is, it's it's more of a, um, I guess a, it has a broader appeal uh, in its presentation, but also contains um, uh, elements of uh, Crowley and uh, other important spiritual teachers. Um, but yeah, it also comes from a naturist perspective or a new not nudist yeah nudist perspective yeah, yeah that's something we haven't we haven't done a nude podcast yet. well i mean we do do the podcast in the nude <laughs> <laughs> every every week just but, as well it's not visual yeah exactly that's why sitting now is, is audio only right. <laughs> put, that would pause in your minds and your dreams forever <laughs> i i expect so I, I hopefully i i hope uh, uh, our friends in podcast land will concur with us that this uh, they they're they're tuning they're tuning their crystal sets to the starry ether to receive the uh, the the this the, the sagacity and um, charm of uh, Mr. Gray. Indeed. So let's cut across to that interview now, and we'll see you on the other side. Hello, Trevor Gray. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, I was wondering, could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? 
Hello, yes, yes. Nice to nice to be speaking to you. And um, I'll also say, because I do believe some Thelemites listen to this, so for any Thelemites out there, I'll just say, do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. My name is indeed Trevor Gray. It is spelt with an A, by the way, G-R-A-Y. I'll say that because in case you search on Amazon, um, you can do it by putting my name in about my book. So it's G-R-A-Y. So I'll just mention that at the beginning, all right? I'm the author of two published books at the moment, the historical occult novel From Manhood to Godhead, The Many Lives of Jean Vassar, uh, and also the naturist love story, A Whisper in the Silence. I've been a member of the UK Grand Lodge of Ordo Templiorentis for 22 years and Grand Treasurer General for the past 17 years. I'm also a Bishop of Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica, the Gnostic Catholic Church. Career-wise, I took early retirement 12 years ago to concentrate on writing, having spent my entire working life in the wonderful world of show business. As a teenager in the 1960s, I played drums in local pop bands and gigged briefly as a stand-up comedian. Professionally, I initially worked as an actor, but went on to become a personality disc jockey, as it were called then, in the latter half of the 1970s for the rank organisation in Brighton. After running a voiceover agency in London's West End, I moved into theatre management, where I worked successfully for 28 years as operations manager for the three theatres and the cinema in Worthing. All right, That's it in a nutshell. There we go. Brilliant. So let's talk a little bit about your acting career. Um, because that's, that's pretty interesting. I, could you tell us a little bit, you know, how, how did you get into acting? What was the kind of, you know, what led you that in that direction? Well, it wasn't immediate. It was something I'd been involved in from amateur point of view. I'd helped start a youth um, theatre in Littlehampton and I was heavily involved in that acting and then directing. Um, and obviously, so I had a great chance to practice my acting and to develop it. Um, but when I um, first left school, I was too young to actually attend drama school. So I started training as a certified accountant. I had no interest whatsoever in that sort of thing, but my father happened to know one of the partners in the company. Now, little did I know, of course, at that particular time, that such training would many years later prove to be so helpful when I was to be made Grand Treasurer General of the UK Grand Lodge of OTO. Anyway, after just a year or so, of doing this accountancy, I applied for training at a drama school. I auditioned at the Weber Douglas Academy of Dramatic Art in London and got accepted for their three-year actor training course. Now, in those days, equity union membership was very important because it was still a closed shop then. You had to have an equity card to work in the theatre. And most theatre companies were allowed to employ two non-equity members that would give them two provisional cards. So if you actually had an equity card, it was a great benefit when you uh, actually left drama school. And I was fortunate to get mine before leaving by doing some stand-up comedy gigs in working men's clubs, restaurants and nightclubs under the equity variety contracts. So as I left school with the benefit of having a, um, an, a, an equity card. My first professional acting job was in the 1970s with the Midlands Arts Theatre in Birmingham. It was a modern musical called Downright Hooligan. It was actually based on some of the infamous muggings that had taken place in Birmingham. A rather strange subject, I think you agree, but um, it made a good musical. In that, I not only acted, but also played the drums as well. 
Then I did a show in their outdoor arena theatre in Cannon Hill, which was called Cosmic Comic Circus. Now, in the first half, I played Godzilla, the world's only drumming gorilla, <laughs> in the full appropriate um, uh, gorilla outfit. And in the second half, I played a very famous comic strip um, hero, The Thing. Now, for that, of course, I'm, I'm only five foot seven and the thing was quite a monster so i had this big padded costume on and high heels and things like that you know all built up and very very big was that the thing from the fantastic four or i believe it was yes yes yeah yeah anyway as a gorilla i used to appear high up on top of this open air arena theater um kind of thumping my chest in the gorilla world that sort of thing but like something um you know one of these horror films whatever um and um i would grab a rope and swing down into the centre over the circus ring, slide down the rope, and then do my drumming to I'm the King of the Jungle, that kind of thing as well. Well, one particular performance, unfortunately, I missed the rope and I fell and I sprained my ankle. So after that, unfortunately, Godzilla, the world's only drumming gorilla, had to walk about with a limp. But because I'd also played the thing, of course, it also meant this comic hero thing, he also had a limp which obviously must have looked quite, quite um, strange, to say the least. I did very theatre work after that, including tours with a company called Polka, which mainly uh, did shows for children. Uh, we went to some very big uh, number one touring theatres with them, though, and I worked there as an actor and also as a puppeteer as well, which is another skill I learned. One of my favourite roles, acting-wise, was with uh, another company where I played Mercutio in a modern-day version of Romeo and Juliet. Now, as it was modern day set, you know, I, rather than using rapier swords, we used knives instead. Despite my being awarded um, uh, a certificate of merit by the British Board of Fight Directors, stage fight directors, um, when I was at drama school, and lots of very careful rehearsals, in the very first performance, I was stabbed in the hand. <laughs> as you can imagine, there was quite a bit of blood. And uh, the amusing thing was that I was speaking to some of the audience after the show and one said to me, great performance, enjoyed it very much, but I do think the stage blood could have looked a bit more realistic. <laughs> so I was pleased to inform that it was in fact real blood and it wasn't meant to have happened. Oh, yeah. A great benefit of my acting days was meeting my wife-to-be, Rosie. Of course, we eventually got married. She became my wife. And uh, she was an actress. We met on a tour. We did a tour together, met the first day in the rehearsal studios, and we did this tour together and uh, kind of romance blossomed, I suppose, during that tour. She did theatre work, but also a great deal of TV work, some serious plays and that, but also some very well-known comedy um, series of the time. She was in Please, Sir, um, and she was in uh, Beggar My Neighbour, The Goodies, and the one that everyone wants to hear about, of course, was Dad's Army. She did three episodes of Dad's wow. Army. Yeah. And, of course, those episodes are still being shown on television, um, you know, quite often. She does get repeat fees still from all those things. But um, if Dad's Army is on BBC, she does much better than if it's on um, one of the kind of funny small channels or whatever on television. But but um, so, so, as I say, she did a lot of television. But that's how we met on tour um, in, in a play. As I mentioned earlier... Um, I got into DJ work and I did know that um, when a Christmas came, I could actually earn more doing DJ work than I would do doing panto. And so I started doing some DJ work in some nightclubs 
And I was spotted by the rank organization who offered me the position of resident DJ at their top rank suite, as it was called then in Brighton, uh, for four years. And it was a big venue. It still is, of course. It's called something different now. But I was playing to up to 2,000 people a night, playing every sort of music you can imagine, from ballroom dancing on a Monday night, this kind of strict tempo, the, you know, the, the um, Strictly thing, um, to, um, to well, it was punk music, punk rock came in. That was also the, the, the 70s, of course, to the glam rock period. So I was dressed up in bright colour satin and that kind of gear on stage for those nights. We did private functions. We did all sorts of things. So it was a very varied career. The problem for me was when they extended the licensing hours and the hours that the, the, the club was open. And uh, when it got to like being open to two o'clock in the morning, it was just too much for me. So I wanted to kind of, um, um, you know, to kind of do something different. I had run a voiceover agency in between, by the way, in London's West End. Um, so anyway, I uh, was offered the position of operations manager at Worthing Street Theatre Cinema, as I mentioned earlier. And I worked there for nearly 28 years. And then again, as I mentioned earlier, I took retirement um, 12 years ago. Um, so the early retirement, so I could concentrate on my writing. And that is about me, I think, um, and my acting career, as much as I could tell you. Uh, and uh, I understand, Mr. Gray, that you, you do have links with the Connaught Theatre as well. Is that is that right? In yeah, I mean, I, I never appeared at the Connaught Theatre as an actor. Rosie did. She appeared. I actually saw her in two plays at the Connaught. Cause I used to go along, um, you know, when I lived, I was born in Little Hampton along the coast. So I, I used to go along to, to Worthing and as a member of the audience before I went to drama school to, to see plays. And she was in two plays there. And of course I saw in them and not, not ever imagining that one day would meet and one day would actually get married. So uh, that, that was great. But, but when we, um, when I was operation manager of Worthing Theatres, it was at one point a trust, but then it was taken over by the council, which I work for. Um, and so they amalgamated more. So we looked after the, as I say, the um, Pavilion Theatre Assembly Hall, and the Connaught Theatre as well, as well as the cinema, which is um, attached to the Connaught Theatre. That's another strange thing as well, because in the 1960s, I would say playing drums with local pop bands and things, and uh, we used to go to the Assembly Hall and the Pavilion because all the top bands of those days used to appear there. There was no, um, there was no Brighton Centre then. There was the Dome, I believe, but no Brighton Centre. We used to go all the top bands. I remember seeing the Who three times, I remember seeing all sorts of things. The busiest I ever saw it was when a guy who I always admired a lot, a guy called Arthur Brown, you may remember that the crazy world of Arthur Brown, his number one hit was Fire. Yeah, my father was and, really obsessed with him. Well, right there, well when, when Fire was number one on top of the pops and so forth, um, he was actually at the, at the assembly, when he appeared at the pavilion first, when a band called Vanilla Fudge, I think, had cancelled. Um, but um, then I saw him again, as I say, and that was absolutely packed. There were more people outside the assembly hall than in, because they just couldn't get tickets, so many people wanted to get inside. So um, I never imagined we should go to wonderful um, you know, top bands, and one day I'd be working there as operation manager. So that's another thing which was totally unexpected. Yeah, I mean, you, you, over the years, you must have met a great deal of uh, celebrities and Famous people. I mean, the Connaught. I mean, my the association for me in the Connaught is that uh, I happen to know, and it's significant to some people. But it's where uh, Peter Cushion, the famous uh, horror actor, he started his career long before, yeah. long before you. <laughs> I mean, his first time he walked the boards was at the Connaught, and mm. also um, the other thing I happen to know about is that one of the Ventham 
who's the mother of the famous um, Cumberbatch actor. He, he uh, she, uh, she started. She was a university student uh, for art, art university student, and then she did that. She started to paint the scenery for the Connaught Theatre, and that's how she ended up finding her way into the stage and into the the you know the theatre and so on. So they're, they're, for me, they're they're the associations. With that, with well, that's that. good. I mean, the, the Connell Theatre is very important. I mean, Worthing has three theatres, um, um, and at times the council have tried to close one of them at least down because of the, the funding costs. I believe it's run as a trust now, in fact, now since I left. I'm fairly sure it is. But um, they did. They they have tried at times to close them down. They're important. They're three different theatres. The, the Pavilion Theatre is a lovely um, for Senior March Theatre. The, 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 the Connaught Theatre is seen in March as when the assembly was obviously a concert hall. The, the difference, though, are things, for example, like um, the, the acoustics aren't as good for bespoke and unamplified voice in the pavilion as they are at the Connaught Theatre. That's the best place for plays. The assembly hall is wonderful for classical music. The acoustics there are really wonderful for classical music. Um, and each of those venues has got its own attributes, makes it special. But certainly the Connaught Theatre, so many actors and actresses had their early days there. So it's important, obviously, that that is kept alive. I think that, I mean, I did obviously meet actors and actors at the Connaught Theatre, but I met far more people on the variety side at the Pavilion Assembly, a lot of big names, established names. Some are sadly passed on now, of course, but um, um, I had my, I remember the dear old Bob Monkhouse, who you may remember, he was a lovely man. He was the comedian's comedian. When he got into town, he would buy the local paper so that he could make his... Um, uh, Patter completely, you know, um, it, what's what's happening in the town and everything, knew what was happening. Um, he was a lovely man. He was. And so many others, well, I've met, it was such a privilege to meet these wonderful, wonderful big stars. Um, and um, I, I do think I was very, very lucky in, in doing that. And most of them were really, really nice people as well. Going back to what what you know, my reference points, I mean, mm. we were, with, without the Connaught, and uh, we, uh, we were ultimately wouldn't have Peter Cushion or or um, Wonder Ventham and uh, and uh, you know the, and no yeah there we are you see you wouldn't have that we wouldn't have had the Blood Beast Terror nineteen sixty eight there we go no that's right. um, so, and yeah. many other and many other great works I'm not sure that would be a great loss the Blood Beast Terror that's <laughs> not not my favourite of Cushion's films but you know we do love Peter Cushion on this show um, so I gather from your books and I I'm not sure which order to approach this question in. Um, I was going to ask you about your interest, what sort of spurred your interest in the occult, but I also know you had an experience that might have led to that. So I'm not sure which way round that that occurs. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay, I, I'll talk about how I go into the occult first and then move into the mystical experience because I yeah. use that um, um, that that experience in both my books. Yeah, because exactly. It's yeah. Back on me, and uh, perhaps I could actually read that, that short piece from uh, Whisper in the Silence where. Um, Ollie, the central character, he, he's describing what happens to him because actually it's exactly the same happened to me. I was using my own experience in that. But just to say I got interested in it, you'll be, I'm sure, um, brilliant to know that I was actually brought up a Christian. I wasn't pressurised into going to church by my parents, but um, I didn't mind going. Uh, it was Church of England I attended. It was also also high church. You know, in, in a Church of England, there's high and low church. The high church tend to be more ceremonial, I suppose, more splendour about that sort of thing. Um, and uh, so there was that to it. And so I, I, I quite enjoyed that, looking at that side of it. And when I was 12, I, I became confirmed. I'd already been baptised, obviously, as a child. And I was confirmed at 12. And I really got into it. 
And I became a server when I was old enough to. I used to carry the cross, the candle in the procession. I used to assist the priests up at the um, altar and so forth. And not just on Sundays, but um, on a weekday too. I got very early in the morning, go and um, do, do the mass with, with the priest. Sometimes the vicar, sometimes be just two or three people there in the congregation. But um, I enjoyed doing that. And I go into work after that, of course, to the um, accountancy when I was working there. Um, there was a missionary attached to the church who was a very genuine, interesting guy. And I used to sit talking to him about religion and so forth. He was very convincing as well about Christianity at the time. And uh, after talking to him at one point, I actually thought I might like to become a priest. Um, as it turned out, of course, that um, it wasn't a, a Christian priest I turned out to be. Anyway, I went on to drama school and obviously I wasn't attending church anymore. And one of the actresses, who was in uh, the same group as me there, training group. She had a boyfriend who was a druid. He'd actually been a Wiccan and he'd be belonged to Alexander's um, coven, but he left after they had a big disagreement, the two of them. In fact, I witnessed a psychic battle between one night. We'd been invited to this actress and her boyfriend's um, uh, flat. And it was absolutely uncanny. I mean, it was all the things of a hammer horror story. There were windows blowing up. Sorry, windows were closed, but there were there were gales kind of going through the room. He was lighting, lighting black candles, which weren't blowing out despite this wind. The girl I went with, she was carrying behind a sofa. She was so frightened by all this. I was just totally intrigued by it. And of course, all these words were being said, which meant nothing to me at all at the time and so forth. But I was actually really my interest grew because of that, I think. And um, so I started buying um, books on the subject and became really interested in it. And uh, uh, sorry, then, oh, sorry, sorry. just so, really sorry to interrupt you there. I was just very intrigued. I mean, uh, so that was Alexander's. That was an experience yes. with Alexander. So what was your personal um, impression or Alexander's because he has a sort of a mix. Well, I never met him because I, oh. I mean, I was actually this this um, guy was a druid who also happened to belong to Alexander's cop, then fell out with him. Um, he did actually get friendly with him again, and um, he did say that um, perhaps I could like to go and meet him. And I, I knew at the time I'd read that Alexander's had a, a wonderful li occult library. I'd love to have seen that, but I never actually never arranged, never had that chance. Although I was invited to an actual. Um, appointment or date were never made for me to go along and meet him. So that never happened, which, which is a shame because he was an interesting character, uh, both him and his wife, Maxine, at the time. And, um, you know, I, I would have, I'd like to have met him. That would have been interesting. I did meet another... Oh, uh, meeting down that made, It would made our podcast more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so that's that's how... Um, um, and I think of another occasion when uh, there was there were some druids who were practicing for some event they did have on some hill in london every year some big event i can't remember the hill now somewhere else. and uh, somehow i got roped in to go along to one of their rehearsals in a flat and i remember being given a can of it was meant to be it was meant to be some kind of sacred thing like a ch chalice or something like that and as i hadn't got the actual object set at the time i was given a can of brass i remember i had to stand there um kind of treating this can of brass with a great reverence while he went to this rehearsal i never saw the finished performance i wasn't engaged in it at all but um but that was another um thing i got somehow involved in. as i say that that's what started my interest in the occult really i think that and changed my mind about christianity in the long term as well um you did mention um about my mystical experience now let me say first of all it was quite a simple experience it's one that a lot of people have had but um, let me first describe this. I used it in my book, um, both books. I'd like to just read this short 
bit from A Whisper in the Silence. Um, this is describing Ollie Longbridge's central character's uh, experience, which it was exactly the same as I had. So in reading this, you're hearing about mine as well. Um, the completely unexpected psychic experience was hypnogogic, I think I presented that right, meaning it occurred in those transitional moments between wakefulness and sleep. He had been starting to doze off when he became aware that he was entering a long, dark tunnel. At the end of it, in the far distance, was a blindingly bright white light. Its intensity had initially forced him to shield his eyes from the rays, but gradually they adjusted. About halfway between him and this light stood a strange but non-threatening hooded figure, dressed entirely in black. His right hand was making a beckoning gesture, his soothing voice repeatedly whispering, Come, come, come. Without the slightest trepidation, he had started to walk towards a mysterious entity. Inexplicably, with each step he took, he felt increasing tranquility. Never in his entire life had he encountered such peacefulness and well-being. Then he stopped. Not that he wanted to, for he was curious and inspired by what was happening, but something made him. No, I have to go back, he told the figure reluctantly, but knowingly. As he slowly turned and retraced his steps away from the light, the vision of the voice began to slowly fade until it was no more. And he felt him, found himself just like I did back in his bed, eyes wide open, staring up at the ceiling. That was how it happened to me. It happened in Brighton. Um, Rosie was in our flat at the same time. She wasn't in the same room when that happened, as I say, wasn't bedtime or anything. I was in that state before we went, maybe we went to sleep. So I was half awake, half asleep. Now, had there just been a dream or whatever, I'd have probably forgotten it by the next morning, as one does with dreams, unless you'd note it down in your magical diary or whatever, because, um, you know, these sort of things perhaps are just some little event. But this quite simple thing had so much impact on me. And the actual anything was that it, I've realized I, you know, that we can exist outside the human body. And so I started to take a, an interest in it, like Ollie does in the book, looked into it and found that a similar thing had happened to lots of other people. Often it was described as a near-death experience. I don't think I was dying that night. I do sometimes wonder if I hadn't said no and gone back, whether something would have happened to me. But of course, I did make a decision like Ollie and I, I actually did make a decision to come back again. But although it was something quite simple, I know it's happened to probably millions of other people, but that quite simple event changed my way of believing uh, from a spiritual point of view completely. So then I started looking into things like reincarnation, into all sorts of um, occult and um, supernatural aspects and things like that. But that, as I say, quite simple experience had that profound effect on me. I think I was very, very lucky to have it exactly when I did. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. We've been um, re we've been watching and reading. Well, I've certainly been reading a lot about a character called Robert A. Munro. Uh, mm -hmm. He's an American scientist who had a very similar experience, actually, um, and he he's the man who coined the term out of body experience as well. Um, he runs yeah. he ran something called the Munro Institute, and um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like, again, it had this this equivalent kind of profound effect on him, where it kind of completely changed the uh, you know the course of his life essentially. You know, and it, it's it, these you know these experiences, regardless of like how 
you know grand they are do seem to have this kind of um you know this this big change you know change agent effect kind of thing as you were as you were on um on their lives you know and also as well superficially um somebody listening could say oh well you know it's just a dream but actually i know i mean you know i've had a comparable experience and <clears throat> ken's had a comparable experience and it's like a completely one-off thing and it's not like any other dream it's not like they're, they're yeah, and it's yeah. and the and i think you've you've very eloquently um emphasized the importance there that it's a it's a life-changing experience and and uh it, it's a you can never really shake it off it's a, it does change your you know the, your whole view of things um yeah and i think that's i mean that you know a, a, that's the most significant thing that it leaves you with, I think. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, other little things happen as well. I can remember, for example, uh, when I was at school, I had a weekend job um, in um, working on Saturdays for Key Markets, one of the supermarket chains. It's gone now, but it used to be Key Markets. And um, that was in Rustington, and I lived in uh, Littlehampton. And I used to cycle um, down this lane, as it was, and I think it was all built up down the lane. And um, there was a road, and then at the bottom of it was a very, very busy road. And I'd been late the previous couple of Saturdays. I was kind of told, if you're late again, I'm sorry, we can't continue this kind of part-time job for you, uh, this sassy job. And so the kind of third sassy running, I was cycling down there. The brakes didn't work on my bike. I got to the end of that road where the busy road crossed it, and I just fell off the bicycle. And as I fell off the bicycle, a huge lorry went tearing past. If I hadn't fallen off, I'd have been under that lorry. Now, I was stunned, obviously, from falling off. I got up, looked around. There was nothing on the road, nothing why I should fall. Why should I suddenly almost be thrown off my bicycle? So that, again, was quite a thing to, that made me think, why? Why did I come off that bicycle at that time? Because it saved my life by falling off it without any doubt at all. Mm, yeah. And coming back also to that that visionary experience because i think that, mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about here is that yeah. uh you know in in from manhood to go to the uh, you know one of the recurring themes is the, mm -hmm. the you know the the figure the, the main narrator you know yeah. waking up in the middle of the night and hearing and seeing hearing the voice and uh, mm -hmm. seeing mm -hmm. this light and so on i must confess <laughs> i must confess it did make me think at, at times there's a, there's, a, there's a frankie howard film called up the chastity belt <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's woken up he's he's woken up in the night <laughs> because it, as it turns out i don't know how i got onto this subject but as it turns out he the, he plays two roles he plays richard the Lionheart, and he plays like this this sort of servant mm -hmm. this lowly figure and they're like you know they're separated at birth and this voice comes to him in the night and tells him his destiny and uh i couldn't help thinking that, anyways i couldn't help thinking of that in the best possible sense of the word well, why not? I mean, great information about other things as well like that. That's that all the better. That's great. Yeah, I enjoy that. Good to hear it. So um, I've heard, like I've seen in other interviews as well, you mentioned that prior to, we'll, talk, we'll discuss the ATO in a minute, but prior to the ATO, you joined a different occult organisation. And I was wondering, because I, I know nothing about this, it'd be really interesting to hear about this. Right. Well, um, let me see now. Um yeah. Okay. Well, um, I was uh, still a Christian, as I say, um, and my wife and I were invited to a party by another Wiccan, in fact. Um, this one I did actually get to meet several times. That was Ralph Harvey, oh, yeah. uh, who lived in Hove at the time. And um, I remember we invited to a 
we were obviously weren't part of part of his coven or anything, but um, we've got to know him. And of course, he used to be involved in in providing um, theatrical costumes for um, various uh, productions and things. Um, and um, so there was that theatrical context, I suppose, there. And in fact, when I was a DJ uh, at the top rank suite in Brighton, I employed him once um, to be um, the rider of on a, a headless rider on a horse outside for publicity thing for our um, Halloween dance that, that, that particular year. So he was dressed up in his costumes. He appeared to have no head on a horse. So um, we, we kind of did the work together like that. But I remember we invited to a party at his place and um, I was introduced as this is Trevor the Christian, which amongst Wiccans, I must have doubted that, I think. But there we are. Anyway, I mean, I, I did by then have grave doubts about Christianity. Um, I'd started reading, let's say, so many books about about the subject that um, I came across so many untruths. I actually thought I'd been cheated on pretty badly, told things which evidently weren't true and so forth. And um, although I try not to be anti-Christian, um, I personally do have a problem with, with, with the Christian religion. And I find it so hypocritical as well. The sort of thing happens with priests and children and things like that, completely hypocritical. There we are. And as Pope Leo X of the Putative said, this myth of Christ has served as well, and I would go along with that myself anyway. Um, so, uh, as I say, I was still a Christian at that point, um, and my wife had heard about uh, uh, an order which was in several parts of the country. There was a branch in Brighton at the time, and um, she was going along just to have a meeting with them, see if she was interested, they were interested in her joining maybe and so forth, and it was simply known as the work which is obviously a term used by Coles a lot to complete the work, the great work and so forth. It was just known as the work. Its head had a connection with someone who at some time was certainly involved in the Golden Dawn. I'm not going to actually give his name, but um, he, he's, he's passed on now. But um, he is mentioned in Ithel Cohun's book, Sword of Wisdom, which, of course, is about McGregor Mathers and the Golden Dawn. And his name is, is mentioned in there. So he obviously had some connection. Well, my wife was completely surprised that I took an interest in this. She was like, I still have the Christian still, but, but, but she, um, she was surprised to say, well, in fact, my, 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 I've got doubts coming in by then about Christianity. But I actually, I felt like I was coming home when, when, when they started talking about things that um, um, they did and the sort of ceremonies. And, and it, it, I was attracted to it. Whether I'd been in something similar in a previous life, I don't know, but I was attracted to it. So my wife and I joined. We were, we were lucky. We rose through the degrees fairly quickly, or some of them. Um, the one thing, though, was it was quite Celtic in its approach in, as to the occult. Um, and I never really felt that much um, link to the Celtic side. So in the end, we both decided to leave. It was a big thing to do so. It was quite heart-wrenching at the time, but I decided I needed to leave and move on. And my intention was to do some solo magical work rather than group work. Um, and of course, I got more insights into Crowley doing that. But then that's when I discovered the OTO. If I could just move on to that, that's okay. Because the head of the order of the work had actually talked to me about Crowley. Um, their rituals were a strange kind of mixture, some of Crowley's words, some from different sources kind of mixed together, peculiar mix, but it kind of worked. But um, so I had a couple of Crowley's books already. And I remember I bought my first copy of Crowley's Magic. I bought a secondhand shop in Worthing for £10. 
Um, and the head of the order um, said to me, he thought that was quite a bit of money then, but he said, um, if you can afford to keep that book, one day it'll become very important and useful to you. And of course, that's how it turned out. So whether he foresaw something, I don't know, but um, so it turned out. So I've, I got hooked. I, I bought more and more Chloe books, of course, including as well um, the wonderful book that he received, um, um, the, the Book of the Law. So you probably asked me why the OTO. Um, well, initially, of course, it was it was about um, Alistair Crowley and his writings. The more I read about Lima, it appealed greatly, as did what I read about the OTO. At the time, I didn't realise the OTO was still going. I had no idea whether it was something in the past to finish. But then I bought my first laptop and I sat at the table and I, I put into Google, I Googled Ordo Tempiorientis and it came up and I shouted to my friend, it's still going, it's going, the hotel's still going. And not only that, I found that there was at the time um, an encampment in Brighton as well, just wonderful. So um, my wife then, she said, well, okay, I'll, I'll come along with you as well. So we both um, uh, went along and we met up there in Brighton with some of the members and they seemed to take to us as we did to them. And so we applied to take home a noble degrees, which we took in Hastings back in the year 2000. So 22 years ago. Um, since then, we've both been fortunate to progress in their degrees and grades. Um, and um, also we've had the chance to travel abroad to meet up with some wonderful members in, in quite a few different countries. My wife and I also became uh, a priest and priestess in the EGC, Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica, the Gnostic Catholic Church. And eventually we made bishops as well. So we, we hold that position still. So I'm Grand Treasurer General of the UK Grand Lodge. Um, and also, as I say, we, um, we are bishops as well. And so we're both very, very involved. My wife's my assistant treasurer and um, she, she's involved as well from uh, um, very much involved in all aspects of it. And, and also, uh, Mr. Gray, stepping back uh, in your narrative, I mean, one of the things, I mean, from Man of the God did, I found it in a, a very rich very rich read in fact i'm restarting my second reading today as it happens yeah, i'm delighted to hear that. i'm so pleased and um you know and 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 it, there, there's obviously lots of i mean there's a whole i mean there's a cast of thousands you could if i was just i mean if, if you're going to make it into a film who would who would be well you couldn't have you would have to have different leads wouldn't you but anyways that wasn't my question but my question was uh you know there's there's like lots of um ideas in it so it's a, it's a cauldron there's a fantastic seething cauldron of uh, concepts and ideas and one of the things i found fascinating and at times frustrating if dare i say is that um you know i could see that there was this other philosophy there not the thelemic thing but this other this previous thing and i'm mm. trying to pick the bones out of it i mean would at any time would you ever consider writing a, like a straight sort of essay setting out that worldview that perspective those ideas in, you know that that was my original idea actually it was the original idea of both books i mean the the nature's one as well the the, the idea of um the manhood of godhead was that um the way that came about was how i came to, to write from manhood to godhead was um it, it was about 2004 i remember standing in the kitchen of the venue that was used by oto Shemis lodge in hastings and I was talking to some of the other members while my wife Rosie was making some coffees for us. And now I'd written some serious articles in the um, Shemesh Lodge magazine, um, Soreth. It was called Soreth. And um, I'd written one about the Cathars, about the Knights Temple. I think I've written one about Paracelsus and Well. And the idea was I was writing these, these kind of straight, you know, 
articles about them. And I'd had this idea about, wouldn't it be wonderful if someone could learn from the teachings of all these wonderful occult characters throughout the years by being reincarnated a number of times so they could be take a personally meet them about talk to them. And I put this idea to um, a few other members standing around. It was a great idea. So I thought, well, okay, I'll have a go at doing this. That's why it came to be fiction rather than a factual book. Um, now, at the time, I thought I knew quite a bit, not just about Crowley, but about all these under, other wonderful historical characters in a book. It was only when I actually came to start writing, and I knew actually very, very little. So a great deal of research was needed, and that's why it took so long to write. I never thought it'd be 644 pages, but that's how, how it turned out. Um, but So that's how that came about. Yes, it could have well been a, a straight book. The same with The Whisper in the Silence as well. My original intention was to write a book about the importance of, si importance of silence, how important that was, especially in occult work, um, through meditation um, and silence, more different aspects, keeping silence as well and various things. But um, again, I wanted to reach a wider readership. And so I decided to make that into a novel as well. And also I do think of myself more, I'm not an academic, I think of myself as a creative writer. And um, so writing novels, I think is more suited to me. I actually read again because um, it was actually published in 2019 originally um, for Manhood and Godhead. Um, I thought I'd better read it again because it's so long since I last read it. Um, and I did notice, and I hope perhaps you noticed this, Mark, reading it through, that I could see how over that period of time my writing skills improved as well. And I hope that was That's the case. Yeah. I... You know, from, from the first chapter of <laughs> right through to that last chapter, yeah. how they improved. And I think it improved even more with the whisper in, in, in silence as well, because um, obviously a practice makes perfect. I'd written articles, I say, for Soft and a few other things as well. But um, I'd also, by the way, tried to write other books. I had many ideas for books, and it's an old thing. You start off, you write the first page, it gets put down. That's why they say just writing and completing a book is a great achievement in itself, purely because to actually complete a book does take a lot of effort. There's times you almost give up. You almost give up. You just say, well, I haven't got this drive. I can't do it. And then you think, well, if I do give up, it's all being wasted. So you push yourself to go on. And also when I'm writing, I, I have to have a kind of routine. So I tend to do jobs around the house, um, do stuff, you know, shopping, that, rose, that sort of thing in the mornings. And then I tend when I'm writing to write every afternoon from, say, two to seven o'clock straight through, sometimes a little bit later, because that way you get the continuity. Um, I unfortunately didn't have that continuity all the time with when I wrote for Man to Godhead because we had problems. I was working at the time, of course, um, until I took early retirement. So it meant that I was doing a full time job. I was Grand Treasurer General as well. So I had to come home and do my Grand Treasurer General work in the evening. So that was a difficulty. We also had a, a fire in our house at one point. It was a, um, a uh, what do they call it, a dehumidifier and it burst into flames. Although I put it out, putting myself in hospital by inhaling smoke, uh, what it did mean was the whole house was filled with smoke and a dehumidifier made of plastic when it melts makes an awful mess. So we had to come out of the house. The insurance company were wonderful as it happens and they put us up in temporary accommodation and so forth. But that, that again interrupted my writing. My wife, I love traveling. So obviously I did that as well. So um, that's why it took me 15 years to complete from Manhood to Godhead as well as all the research. When it came to a whisper in the silence, that came about because of the pandemic. I said I wasn't going to write another book, but then the pandemic came and I thought I can't just sit around, I've got to do something. And so I decided to write that. 
And I did have a lot more time to actually sit down and get that continuity again, which, which was good. I completed writing that in just one year. Much shorter, of course, than in the third of length, but I managed to complete that in one year. Yeah, I mean, working through um, from manhood to God, did I mean? I, I mean, as a kind of overview, I was thinking, well, this this must have been like a kind of almost like initiatory experiencing itself. The whole process of having to 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 write it out and do, and all the work connected with that, but also yeah, yeah. It's funny, yeah, it's funny you use that term initiatory because when I was writing it. My intention was not, it was indeed, as you say, a kind of initiatory experience for me, but I also hope to a degree it is to the reader as well. As you know, it is tied up with the um, Kabbalah heavily. It's tied up with the Tree of Life naturally because of that. Um, and I, I do hope that the, 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 at the end of it, by the time the, the reader has finished, they will have experienced something as well, hopefully learnt various uh, things they oh, didn't know as I'm, well. I mean, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not reading it twice for... I'm going to read it three times. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I mean, like I say, it's my my second, my second way through, and and there's so much. I mean, I've so much you can you can sort of take and you know pursue, which is which is what I I, I you know which I always love in a book as well, which is always a good time. I mean, the, with the it's funny you say about your the the it sort of in, in your abilities increasing as you describe them. Yeah, I mean, uh, from my experience reading it, it was it was a bit it was it was very readable more of a workmanlike read to start with but when i got to the paracelsus bit I, I felt really invested more in the characters and they came to life for me a lot more and then as it went on it, it just got better and better so uh yeah yeah so an enriching read it's good to hear that and actually what's interesting is if i said that the book wrote itself that sounds awfully corny but you've heard authors say that before and there's some truth in that and obviously before you start a book especially one as long as that you have to have a nice solid synopsis you have to work out, you know, roughly what's going to happen in each scene and what each scene is going to be. But it's surprising how, through coincidence of that, things change. You, I was learning things that I never knew about these characters. The amount of what you could just call a coincidence, I thought, oh, heavens, well, that links so much with that, and that links with that. And then slightly the plot takes a slight change of route because of something that's come about. So from that aspect, it does slightly write itself. It won't be exactly how you intend to be when you first initially wrote that, that first synopsis. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do, I mean, coming back to the point I was trying to make, I do, I would like, I would very much like to see, uh, like, uh, a book, particularly, as you say, you've got, you've got these, this, these, this, uh, the concept of the plane of rest and these other things, and I can see that there's, there's a philosophy there, which is, um, that's not from Crowley, um, no. and then, yeah. then you've got, I can recognise things which are from Crowley and and things from other mm. things and and there's an underlying in the esoteric sort of uh, uh, hermeticism and so on. There's an underlying sort of underpinning to these mm. these, these ideas, these concepts. But I it I, it intrigued me. I was trying to pick the bones out of it, trying to think, ah, this is the this is the other thing. This is the the yeah. It's the, not it's not so much the previous occult order I belong to. It's more my own beliefs. Now, I mean, obviously, as a dedicated thelemite, dedicated very dedicated member of the OTO um, and a huge believer in all front of what Crowley read as a, you know, in Palima, obviously, and that wonderful, wonderful. But obviously I do have some ideas of my own. I think that's healthy. I think that anything develops. If you, if you just stuck to everything Crowley said, for example, didn't question anything, didn't doubt anything, and that, that'd be a mistake. It's good to question. It's, it's good to think about things. So certainly some of my own philosophy, if you like, came into it, as well as obviously um, that of Thelema and and some other. For example, in, in A Whisper in the Silence, as 
Kemen, I haven't read it. Um, there are some quotes I've used quite extensively. That was the idea to do with silence, to naturism as well, but to do with silence in particular from a wide range of sources, not just the Lima, but from Buddhist sources, from Hindu sources, from all sorts of sources. And that, again, is what I want to do with that book, because although Thelema is the religion that I believe in, the, the religion I follow now, um, I have high regard, for example, the Hindu religion and the Buddhist religion. Um, and um, some of their teachings are very good. I'm not saying I agree with all of them, but some I disagree with, you know, quite, quite strongly. But at the same time, um, I don't want to have a closed mind where I will only write about Thelema. I want in my writing to better promote Thelema, to make, people who don't know about it, have an interest in it and then maybe Google it and find out more and hopefully get involved in it. But at the same time, you know, it's important. One has a wider field, I think, wider field of um, interest than, than just one thing sticking to it. There'll be some things probably said that everyone's going to agree with, obviously. You don't have to agree with everything he said. Think about things and, you know, take them as you want. But um, just, although the core belief of the things Crowley was writing there, my, my core belief as well. What you were actually seeing there was some of my own philosophy coming through as well. Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah. Well, I think also the um, it's, there's a history of um, occult authors using fiction. I mean, obviously Crowley himself wrote fictional books, didn't yeah. he? And Dion Fortune. And so I don't mm. think there's any anything particularly wrong with doing that. <laughs> you know, like you say, it's the possibly the more creatively inclined writers tend to lean towards fiction don't they rather than um like well, I think so, yeah i mean i mean all these all these characters i write about historical characters there's been some very very good wonderful um factual books written about them and i don't know it needs me to write yet another one about them because they exist out there um and of course with the internet now as well it's all to their fingertips and we can find stuff so quickly in the old days of course an author had to go to their library often request a book had to wait for it to come in but now you can find something into seconds can't you across the internet so for writer now it's so much easier than it used to be to get the information required yeah so what just out of interest what was it about crowley's writing that really sort of spoke to you do you think um is there you know any particular things you can put your finger on or well, right from the start, I was recognising truth. I mean, I bet the kind of bad things said about him, you know, in the, in the early press and things like that. I could see that that just wasn't wasn't necessarily true. I'm not saying he was a perfect man, but to be a prophet, no one has to be perfect for that, you know, whatever. Um, but I, obviously a lot of his work is difficult to understand, especially at the beginning. Um, I do feel that on many occasions, Crowley perhaps found it a little bit difficult to write simply. Um, he was an educated man and he, he was very gifted. And it is difficult at the beginning for people to understand some, some of Crowley's writings. That may well be why um, the journalists were so anti-Crowley, one of the reasons why, because probably they couldn't understand what he was writing about and they didn't bother to read what he was writing about anyway. Uh, but... Um, yeah, it was through reading his work. I mean, the Book of the Law had a tremendous impact on me. It really did. I mean, I, okay, Crowley didn't write that, receive that from his guardian Andrew Awas. But the fact is that um, that just, just had so much impact on me. And it's very, very precious. I'm sure it's all Thelemites. I've got, I've got a Russian version. I've got all sorts of versions, different countries and things. Um, but but it's, it's uh, yeah, wonderful. And I, I just, I personally as well, think that Thelema is, I know some people question, is it religion or not? To me, it is a religion, Thelema. Uh, and I think it's wonderful in, in so many ways. And I just wish 
because religions have caused so much, so much suffering in the world, especially the Christian religion, and there's one or two others which I don't want to talk about now. But but I mean um, that I think that the whole basis behind Thelema is is good, and if everyone followed the Thelemic religion, I think the world would be a far better place. Mm. But it's not going to appeal to everybody. Obviously, it's not going to appeal to everybody. I suppose it would have to. I, I think, it'd, yeah, it would have to resonate with. I, I think it's something. If, if a perspective, a worldview, a philosophy uh, resonates with you, yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, um, I, I don't. I mean, if everybody was a Thelemite, I mean, Thelema probably wouldn't exist because it, no. it wouldn't make sense. But uh, I mean, it's interesting. You, I, I mean, I picked up on you, you saying religion then, but I mean, it's something you did discuss in from manhood to godhood. Is is it a religion? And you you you, you question that, but that's interesting mm. that. Yeah, touch on that. Read the but book. The, read the book is, for the full. Yeah. Ex- read the read the book for the full explanation. Then. Mm. Yeah, but um, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, it is the Lima that we have the EGC and so forth. I mean, Crowley, as we know, he wrote the the Gnostic Mass for um, for the OTO specifically for to be performed in public as well as privately. Um, and I mean, that's wonderful as well. That the, the Gnostic Mass is a wonderful, wonderful ritual, and. I think that any listeners who haven't been to a Gnostic Mass should try and go to one. I think it really will open their eyes because um, um, there are ones which are done for the public to attend. And if they hear about this, they should apply to go along because it will be a real eye-opener for them. I, I, I think, well, obviously, yes, you know, I think very highly of the IOTO as a fraternity. I think Crowley did a brilliant job rewriting the original initiation rituals when he when he became head of the order. And, um, and uh I think, you know, it's, it is true, obviously, the initiation rituals, the order's teachings are passed on. The only official rituals of the order are really the initiation rituals and the Gnostic Mass. Obviously, when you have uh, meetings in, in our lodges, camps and noises, the different sorts of um, uh, groups we have for meetings, obviously, other forms of magic are studied, are practiced and so forth. Uh, but um, the the initiations are the important thing. And I think for anyone interested in the occult, it would be really great for them to maybe to experience those initiations. That kind of sheer look of joy on some initiates' faces when they've had their initiation says so much for a start. And then if they take the trouble to really work on their degrees, because they're given degree papers so they can work through them, it gives recommended reading lists, recommended practices, different um, occult things to study and to practice, that sort of thing. If they do that, they can achieve so much and so much realisation of truth and mysteries they probably would never imagine before. I, I suppose the uh, maybe it, the analogy of the the initiatory experience and the initiations being the spine and the uh, and the you have an inherited legacy there with the other work as well. I mean, it's I mean it's 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 all an inherited legacy as well as it is in hermetic and occult <laughs> fraternities of all sorts. One thing that um, obviously we've had some more controversial guests on recently that's like um and mm. uh, there's been a lot of um mud slung uh, at the oto um by some of these guests and it's actually quite nice to hear someone from the other side of that you know saying you know so i mean could you talk about your experiences and uh, like because like i said we've had some guests on recently that have um possibly put off some of our listeners from the oto so it might be quite nice to have uh, the voice from the other side maybe you know talk a little bit about the kind of positive experiences you've had with the oto and you know um 
yeah. Well, so, I, mean, I, I, I could only be positive because I've only had positive experiences. Um, I mean, as members of Shemesh Lodge, it wasn't Hastings. Um, I mean, my wife and I were both privileged to take on um, um, active roles. I, I became the lodge treasurer uh, for Shemesh, and that's how I eventually uh, became Grand Treasurer General because um, when the UK Grand Lodge was formed in, um, in May 2005, they needed to get a treasurer and um, I don't think it quite worked out as, as it anticipated initially. So then um, Freighter Hyperion, the um, Grand Master um, of the UK Grand Lodge, um, he asked me in September 2005 if I would consider becoming Grand Treasurer General, which I was absolutely delighted <laughs> and, and honoured honored to, to take on that role, of course. Um, and um, I think that Having that involvement is important. I mean, I, if I just gone along to meetings, sat there and done all the taking, if you like, it wouldn't have been as much as getting involved and, and doing things. And um, also with Shemesh Lodge, although I was never, I, I never wanted to be a body head. Um, I did prepare things. For example, I, I went a lot of trouble preparing um, things for their pan ritual uh, one year um, and um, did a lot of study on that and, and work on it. And so I became involved. I think, I think if you actually become really involved in something as much as you can, I think that you get far more out. In other words, what you put in, you get out of it. And that's from an involvement on the, if like, the administrative side, but also from pretty from a magical point of view. The more you put in, the more you get out. If you don't bother to do the work, you're, you're not going to make much advancement from that point of view. So I, I think because I was involved, I think that's why my experience has been so positive. Mm. I was obviously fortunate that that the position came up for Grand Treasurer General because it means from an admin point of view, I'm I'm on the kind of central administered bit of, of, of the, for the UK Grand Lodge. Um, I get to meet people um, in, let's say, slightly higher positions in, in, in other countries as well. And so I've been I've been very fortunate in that from that point of view. I think I think that Crowley did a brilliant job in rewriting those original initiation, which as I said. Um, as far as you mentioned about the criticism, um, I'll say a couple of things on that. First of all, some people will obviously access uh, through priority copies of our rituals. They will access some of those online. A couple of books have been published with those in as well, of course. But it's not the same as, a, as attending initiation. You just read those. First of all, there are inaccuracies in them, a lot of inaccuracies. And there are things that happen at initiations at several different levels which um, are not written down on paper. So you're not going to get the full initiatory experience by reading either in a book or online um, that you think those initiations are. There's more to it than that. And they only work in a temple with a proper initiator um, and not, as I say, from some priority script. Now, I'm not on social media. Did, when you mentioned about, you know, some people, um, you know, say bad things about it. Well, that's fine. It's not for everyone. Um, I'm made aware, though, on social media from time to time of when there is criticism about the order. It's a bit misleading for the general public, if, if you like, if they, if they hear this, because when you get a name, it doesn't mean anything. Like I know as Grand Treasurer the name of every single member who is a mem member of the UK Grand Lodge at the moment. I also know the people who have been members in those 17 years I've been Grand Treasurer General. There's awful names come. I don't know who they are, especially if it could be people from America or the other country. I've got no idea if they're members of the OTO or not, whether they uh, were ever in the OTO. And in fact, sometimes it turns out either they're people who have left and were only Minerva or first. When I say only, I don't mean that in a, in a bad way, because, from a, for example, there's a 
high up member of the order who always reminds us all that we're all Minervals. And that's quite true. We are. We're always learning all the time. None of us have perfected anything. So, so um, um, for that point, it's true. So I'm not, not going to say it, but though, obviously the, 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 the Minerval is a kind of welcome guest into the order. And then the first degree is an introductory degree and so forth. Very important it's symbolism. But if someone's only, say, been a Minerval, or even a first degree, they know very little about the order, as well as, you know, the, um, what they're supposed to learn in that, in, in, through the initiations. So when they go online and start speaking um, in a critical way, it's difficult for them really to do so if, if properly if they haven't had that full experience. And if they've never been a member at all, I find it very difficult for them to then really be critical of the um, order. If it's a member, a member who is critical, Obviously, we were only too happy to talk about, discuss it with them, make changes necessary, maybe even. But if not a member, even, um, I don't think there's an awful lot we can do about it, really. Mm. Um, so I do think people who hear criticism being made about the order should be very careful before taking it too seriously. They should say, what experience this person making this criticism got of the order, of the order's teachings, of the order's initiation, and indeed of Crowley. You know, how, what have they read? I mean, I've, I've, I've seen or been shown criticism of the highest degrees of the OTO online by people who I know were only Minerva and first degree, and they could not have any real understanding of those higher degree secrets, as some people refer them to, being a member, just uh, being a Minerva or first degree. So to be making if they, like, comments and criticisms about the higher degrees is total nonsense in, in that scenario. Yeah, isn't I guess because of the success, I suppose, of the ATO, it's it's an easy target as well, isn't it? You know, compared to other orders, it's like, um, and obviously the Crowley being the kind of superstar of the occult that he is as well, it does really, uh, it leads. You know, it's it, to me, it always feels like it's a bit of an easy target. Um, yeah, sometimes it's professional jealousy. I mean, I I think in in people, I mean, people have to have their own experiences, and I think it's not it's true of all fraternal bodies of or initiate your experiences, you know, is that, you know, all intellect is paper. I mean, and, and um, the lived reality of it, or, uh, you know, if you read a book on swimming, it's nothing like, you know, <laughs> it's nothing like actually the experience <laughs> of learning to swim. And then, and that's where the initiation takes place. It doesn't take place on paper or online. And, um, and that's important. I, I suppose people do have various experiences depending upon the personalities they encountered and, and um, where they happen to arrive, where they, you know, in some parts of the world are better catered for, from an OTO point of view than, or, you know, than others. And it's not just, and that's not peculiar to the OTO. It's, it, it's, yeah, it's just, it, it's just in general organisations of people, there will always be clashes of personality and things like that. That's that's quite common, I think. But, uh, but anyway. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just think yeah, that will always happen, of course. But hopefully a lot of differences can be forgotten um, when you're in the temple and should be forgotten in the temple. I mean, it's a bit like um, in... Um, uh, whispering, sorry, in, in from manhood to Godhead, um, in the Elias Ashmole chapter, for example, um, that is at the time of the English Civil War. Now, Freemasons at the time would have been on both sides, if you like, but it was a rule. When they came together for the Masonic meetings, any difference was forgotten whilst they were in the temple, in their Masonic temples. And I think that should be true. You know, you, you might have political difference, also think none of that at all should come as the temple. 
So let's let's talk a little bit about your actual books, um, starting with From Manhood to Godhead. Um, maybe give us a kind of summary or, you know, a, a, some kind of um, overview of, of, of From Manhood to Godhead. And then we'll go on to the, uh, the new the newer book. OK, yeah, right. So uh, From Manhood to Godhead, um, The Many Lives of Jean Vassar. By the way, let's call that. Well, first of all, From Manhood to Godhead has a double meaning, which the, the reader will realise as the book goes on. It's a lot about sacred sexuality in it, so there's a tip on that. Um, Jean Roussard, he had his name of the first character in the book. The first, the first, he's born the first time, he's not the first time he's born, I don't know, but the fact is the first time he appears in the book, he is Jean Roussard. That's why first, it's the many the, lives. The, the initial, many lives. Yeah, yeah, the, the initial the, one which appears in the book, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the initial yeah. narrator. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, he's not the narrator. Narrator is, is the voice. Now, the voice, by the way, um, I was, I was a, bit upset when towards the end of writing a book, a, a series of television about singers called The Voice or Oh Dear, you know, but, but it had to be The Voice. It went back to Blavatsky, things like that, talking about this, you know, The Voice of Silence, etc. And that's why it was called The Voice. The Voice appears in the books, in the book. Um, likewise, originally, by the way, the book was going to be called The Journey. And then Tony Blair brought out his biography called The Journey. And when I actually Googled The Journey, I found there were hundreds of books called The Journey, and that's why I came up with the title. Anyway, to just read the back of what it says at the back, for those who haven't seen it, uh, this is it. This compelling occult novel tells the story of Jean Vassar's journey through many lives as he discovers the hidden secret doctrines of reincarnation, sacred sexuality, magic, alchemy, masonry, Kabbalah, mysticism, Egyptian Freemasonry, and carefully explained occult symbolism. The wondrous knowledge he attains through authentic rituals and previously veiled initiations dismisses once and for all the perceived finality of death. In his determined and uplifting attempt to ascend the tree of life in search of the crown of divinity, Jean is encouraged by a mysterious entity. This spiritual guide from the angelic realms of the astral is known initially to him in the silence simply as the voice. Jean's inspiring tale begins in the French town of Béziers and through the miracle of rebirth continues for hundreds of years. His ever-evolving soul travels all over the world and incredibly far beyond to planes previously unimagined. In doing so, he is counseled, influenced and hugely affected by many real-life historical characters. Their vitally important teachings are brought to life once more, mainly in their own words. They include the persecuted Cathars, the Knights Templar, Jill de Rey, a medieval law executed as a serial killer, Paracelsus, the Swiss, Swiss physician, philosopher and alchemist, John Dee, the astrologer, occult philosopher and advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. Of course, Edward Kelly, the occultist, alchemist and medium. Elias Ashmole, the alchemist, astrologer and early Freemason. And that was during the turbulent times of the English Civil War and the Great Fire of London. Count Cagliostro, the occultist Freemason initiator of Egyptian Freemasonry. The Count de Saint Germain, said to have lived for hundreds of years. William Blake, the visionary poet, painter and printmaker. Pascal Beverly Randolph, the African-American doctor, medium and occultist at the time of the American Civil War. Elvis Levy, the celebrated French occultist and ceremonial magician. Plus, of course, Alistair Crowley, the highly influential occultist, author, ceremonial magician, and prophet of the Lima. So all in there, a lot of characters as well. Uh, there are some fictional character side characters, like maybe a girlfriend of the central character, her parents or whatever, but those historical characters are in there. And by and large, their biographies are real as they happened. And they're 
lot of their biographies have followed um, in each chapter. Yeah, so yeah. that's a little bit about the book. And then, um, obviously, A Whisper in the Silence uh, came out. What kind of, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about um, naturalism and, or nudism, depending on which region you're in. <laughs> I, I believe that's the case, isn't it? They are the same thing. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, um, yes, the way that came about, so I was going to write a, just a straightforward book about silence, who brought with silence. And I thought, well, um, yes, it could be a novel. I had this idea about um, Ollie and Emma. Now, the, the, this is the idea. I mean, if I read the back of that, I just... Yeah, yeah let's, let's, let's go for that. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, I describe it as an inspiring naturist love story. Inspiring because I hope it's inspirational, because especially those wonderful quotes from famous um, spiritual people, but an inspiring naturist love story. So we have a private desert island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, a deep-thinking multimillionaire seeking solitude, silence, and a naturist lifestyle. The unexpected arrival of a beautiful young glamour model in need of Prosecco and noisy parties. Mismatch, humour, spiritual wisdom, near tragedy and all-conquering love. One unforgettable, heartwarming tale. So I had this idea, as I say, as Ollie had this experience and he wants to find silence somewhere. The book describes how in the novel, obviously, he searched for silence and eventually he, he leased this um, because the huge fortune he had when he sold his business and that he leased this um, island in fact in Fiji in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and he's gone there to find this silence I know that from a spiritual point of view you can find silence anywhere but the fact is he thought it'd be easier if he could find silence away from the noise of London and all that he could go somewhere so he, he went and lived on this on this island intentionally by himself in solitude and then we had Emma Emma Eve and she is a glamour model, a very, very attractive glamour model, very, very popular. She does um, glamour modelling as opposed to fashion modelling. So she quite often does not wear clothes. Sometimes it's skimpy bikinis and things. Sometimes she's completely naked because of um, um, photo shoots for Nature's magazines and things like that. And because of something which goes horribly wrong with her holiday plans, she ends up on that island. And it develops from there. And... Not only that, but because of Ollie's interest in Crowley and the occult and Thelema, there's all that he talks to her about. They have some strange experiences on that. The Holy Guardian Angel plays a very important part in the story. So it's, it's a book which definitely appeals to naturists and um, also should appeal to people interested in the occult and Thelema as well. Interestingly, I can tell you that A Whisper in the Silence has actually outsold um, for Man Who Got Her by at least 10 times, at least that. Uh, the majority of sales are on ebook, on the Kindle ebook. Um, it's also available, that particular, the, the, the second book. The first book by was only available on Amazon. It's in several countries available, but only on Amazon. The, um, the Whisper in the Silence is actually um, also um, available from um, iTunes, iBookshaw. So if people got I, iPads and that, they can get it for that. And it's also available in bookshops. You can't just go and bookshop and pick a copy up unfortunately but you can order a copy um uh, and you can get a copy that way um and also H&E Next magazine um they they sell copies of it as well um so there's um, oh and also um it's um, available from um, Barnes and Noble as well and Kobo books as well for those who've got Kobo readers as opposed to um uh, Kindle readers and that sort of thing so it's got a it's got a it's got a kind of wider market that people can go so I don't think there's any reason that's selling I think that 
as a naturist book, it came out at the same time. There, there are lots of factual naturist books out there. And there's also a lot of naturist books about, let's say, who done it, that sort of thing, who done it in a naturist um, resort or something like that. Uh, some of them are rather short stories rather than full-length novels. But um, um, so I think I, I hit that kind of naturist market exactly the right time. Obviously, I did know a bit about naturism. I, I, I've been quite open. In fact, he says, I, I'm a naturist. My wife and I have been to naturist resorts around the world. Um, I first found naturism when I was a DJ, when I wondered by accident, as <laughs> I think I was chatting with Mark earlier about his new word accident. But as I walked onto the naturist beach in Brighton, that's where I first discovered it. I say since then, I've visited with my wife resorts all over the world. Um, I will just quickly at this point tell you a little funny story about when we're early on in a naturist resort called Costa Natura, a wonderful resort. It's, um, it's in Estepona on the Costa del Sol, and it's a white village. Now, if people know that area of Spain, the white village is normally up in the mountains. This particular one is on the coast. It was, it was Spain's first official naturist resort, and it's on the coast to say, lovely resort. And um, we, the first time we went there, we had an apartment there, and I got into magic, and I decided one day to do the Rose Cross ritual. Uh, that, of course, is not um, a Thelemic ritual, it's a Golden Dawn ritual, but it's a wonderful ritual, one that I use quite a lot when I'm working on my, on my own, you know. This particular time, being Atrius Resort, I wasn't wearing any clothes, and I was doing the Rose Cross ritual using an inset stick. And for those who know, you begin by uh, drawing the Rose Cross in each of the quarters, um, um, saying the appropriate words or vibrating the particular words you should be saying at that point. And then you go to center and you draw it above you with the inset stick and then below you. And when I come to draw it above me, I'd totally forgotten that there was a spinning ceiling fan above me in this resort. And so as I went to draw the rose cross above me, it promptly chopped the inset stick in half, sending sparks flying over my naked body. So I, I used that in a, in a magazine article I wrote and I called it Singe of the Flesh. So there are occasions maybe when one has to be a bit careful practicing magic naked. Um, I did actually talk about this somewhere else about this, and I actually talked about the banishing rich of the pentagram. And I was saying how different it is if you do that naked. And when you stand there, um, you know, at one point, just, just in an actual way somehow, it's totally different. Um, to doing it with your sermon of robes on. And I think with magic, this time when I, if I'm working at home, obviously if I'm working in OTO environment, I've always got my robes on, of course. If I'm at home, some people wear robes, sometimes work without robes. It depends on what I'm doing and what um, feels right. And also what the temperature is as well, obviously, because um, naturists aren't naked all the time. If it's cold, you put something on. <laughs> so there we are, that's that. Um, that's how I found naturism. Um, I do want to hear a little bit about about um, about naturism at all. There are benefits, of course, to uh, naturism. Um, most naturists realise it's not just the personality that matters. It's not what someone looks like. I mean, it's a great way to way to meet and meet people in from all walks of life. Uh, it's a great kind of equaling up thing when people aren't wearing clothes. Um, and natures tend to be very friendly because of their shared interest in, in naturism. They like to talk about which clubs they've gone to, what wonderful beaches there are, resorts and so forth. Um, and naturally talk about the weather because the weather plays a big bearing, as you can understand. No pun meant on the word bearing, by the way, but um, a great bearing on, on, on naturism. Um, in a naturist setting, obviously it becomes a very, very quickly 
becomes aware that um, um, people are fat, they're thin, they've got lumps, they've got bumps, they've got saggy bits, they've got scars, their lives well lived. And seeing this makes people far more accepting and loving of their own bodies. They can let go quite quickly of their long-held hang-ups and accept that there's no part of the body which is shameful or dirty. This also helps with a multitude of other physical problems and psychological problems. It reduces worries, it reduces stress levels, and it improves mental health and boosts self-esteem. It's been quite a bit of scientific actual um, work done on this, looking into the benefits of naturism, which are all coming to the surface now. Many experts also think that being naked is better for the skin, allows the skin to breathe, eliminating excess sweating, toxins, inflammation of the skin follicles, improves blood circulation, fresh air, of course, also good on the skin and uh, no doubt good for you. Not to mention, of course, getting plenty of vitamin D. It, detox 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 sorry, got teeth back in a minute. it detoxifies the skin and, um, and um, um, boosts your kind of body in many, many ways. You have to be careful at the same time, of course, not to overdo it, use protective sun lotion and that sort of thing. Um, the British naturist, uh, British naturism, which is the official naturist body in this country, which has, as I say, several thousand members, um, they're quite keen to always um, point out that naturism is not about sex. Because someone naked doesn't mean they're thinking about sex. Naturists, like anyone, have sex, obviously, but in the appropriate place, in privacy. Um, but it is important that people realise that because people like it doesn't mean they're thinking sex, sexual thoughts and that sort of thing. And um, obviously that, that, is, that sort of thing wouldn't be tolerated, you know, sex in, in the nature of resorts and so forth, because um, it's looked down upon. And even, for example, naturists, one of the things they do, they carry a small towel with them. So when you're sitting down for hygiene reasons, you sit on a towel. If you sit down on, on commonly used chairs and without using a towel, it is well looked down upon. That's just, that's just a hygiene thing. But it is something, it's not for everyone. Um, it's very difficult to really, really describe the benefits of nature to people as they try it themselves. Some people say, oh, I can never do that, never do that. It's surprising how many people are saying the pandemic did try at home first of all. Um, British Nature's numbers say shot up during the pandemic. And um, and also their online offering as well, where they couldn't have meetings, they started doing naked online yoga, um, all sorts of naked classes and things. And that became such a huge thing that although now things are opening up and people are going along to um, their many varied events they do, they're also keeping their online events going as well because they've become so popular. So I think with Whisper in the Silence, I hit the right thing at the right time with a whisper in the silence. Um, so, so that's really how that all came about. Mm. One thing I've noticed that um, is in both books and something you, you, you seem to write about uh, is uh, sacred sexuality. And I was wondering if you could talk yeah. about that a little bit. What, what is sacred sexuality and why, why do you feel it's important? Well, sacred sexuality is to me the combination of um, um, sexuality and, and spirituality. It's the two. The two are combined, whether people like it, the two are heavily combined. When you start looking at symbolism, for example, it's very, very important. Um, um, in, in both books, a lot about symbolism. In Whisper in the Science, we've got a lot of symbolism about even like things like palm trees and that. Uh, there's an awful lot more in for Man of the Godhead. Uh, sexual, sacred sex has been around since probably the caveman or whatever. Um, you know, it is a very, very important aspect. It's something that I think everyone should study. Uh, I don't want to go into a lot of detail. I want people to read about it in the books, you know, in, in both books. But there's an awful lot in there uh, uh, about the symbolism 
behind sexuality, the importance of sexuality as well, um, from a spiritual point of view as well. I know it's something Crowley, Crowley was obviously very influenced by sex and sexuality. And mm-hmm. obviously, in, in particular, sex magic was was his kind of, uh, you know, it, it appeared to sort of become his main focus, especially towards the end of his life. Um, yeah. Uh, do you think there's um, a crossover? Obviously, there is a crossover, but would you say that that kind of uh, involvement with Crowley's magic has kind of inspired your interest in sacred sexuality? Or it started before before Crowley. Actually, I read books about sacred sexuality before I actually read any Crowley. Um, so, so it started before then, and from quite a young age, I, I realized there's something sacred about about sex. I, I realized there's some link between the two. Then, as I started reading more about it, obviously, I I can see why there was. Um, one must remember is that sex magic is part of sacred sexuality. Sacred sexuality covers a far wider range than just sex magic. Sex magic is a very important aspect of magic, a very powerful and important part of, of, of magic, as I say, but it's not the only part of sacred sexuality. There are a lot more aspects of sacred sexuality which are important as well, which again, people will, will read about in, in, in both books. I'm wondering, would you like to um, give us some more, another reading perhaps from um, the new book? Or the... Um, I'm just reading what I can really like, read without giving. Um... Yeah, we don't want to give anything, any of the spoilers. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, that's what I think, by the way. Um, with um, For Man of the Godhead, uh, to tie in with this podcast, um, as a little thank you, and that, I've managed to reduce the Kindle price down to half its original price. In this country, um, UK, it's um, down to three ninety nine from seven ninety nine, and similarly, it's been reduced in other currencies in other countries as well. So it makes even better value. Um, it wasn't possible to do that with the paperback because being six hundred forty four pages, the printing costs alone are quite. Huge amount, and then by the time Amazon have taken their share, mm. if I reduce it, I actually wouldn't make anything. I make a loss on it, in fact. Mm. And in Australia, where it's also available, in fact, the printing costs are even higher. And if I'd reduce down the paperback version, I'd actually make a loss on every copy I sold. So, so we could do it with the Kindle. That's not a problem because with Kindle, obviously, um, the ebook version, um, there's no printing costs at all. And now there's no VAT on ebooks. It was to start with. But there's no there's no VAT on ebooks either, so well, so, but it has, so it makes it more affordable. People now, yeah, and yeah. a wisp in the science is only two night always always has been just two ninety nine um, for the for the um, ebook version anyway. I've, I wanted to keep that as cheap as possible, and the paperback's only seven ninety nine, so that's much more affordable than yeah. it is a much shorter book. Well, um, uh, we'll make sure to add links to that in the in the show notes as well. So if you know if you're interested in picking up a copy on Kindle copy, especially, um, we'll put links to where you can buy the book yeah i mean as i see well for man who got it, it's only available on kindle that was only published on sorry on on, on amazon as a as a kindle ebook and as a paperback but i did read that a bit overnight all the other kind of outlets that the um a whisper in the silence is, yeah. is available from so people have a have a wider choice of where they want to um, um, um get that from um i'm just wondering what i can read i don't just open a page at random a whisper in the silence um I'm trying to think what, what I could read with, without, um, without actually, obviously, discuss nature in a great deal. Uh, Emma, although she was a glamour model, by the way, um, used to sometimes 
modeling naked. She never considers herself an actress at all, but she really takes to it in the book. She really does. She really takes to it. And it, it changes her way of thinking as well about that's why how, how useless clothes are to some degree and why do you need them? I mean, in, in the case of A Whisper in the Silence, you've got two people alone on their own desert island. There's Benny, a pilot who, who flies in their, um, their supplies every couple of weeks from uh, the mainland. Uh, apart from him and um, an unexpected visitor, which I won't talk about for now, uh, a government official. Um, apart from that, they're totally alone on their desert, on their on their on their desert island. Um, so, from that point of view, there's no problem with being naturist there, although it is officially illegal in Fiji. But because no one's coming to their island, no one knows that they're they're being naturist. I did say that British nature was very careful to point out that the um, um, nature isn't about sex. Now, there isn't much sex. There is some sex because obviously it's a love story. And if there was no sex at all between a couple alone on a desert island, if there was no sex took place, I think it'd be a bit strange. So there is some sex in it, but it's, it's, it's written um, in, a, I hope in a, I hope you thought reading it in a, in a sensitive a creative way um, mm. rather than um, in something which is um, might upset some people, you know. Mm, yeah, no, it's definitely, it's tactful. <laughs> yeah, that's what's how it tends to be. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. And, and also in, in, there, there was obviously some sex in for manhood to God as well, and that as well, particularly that is symbolic. I mean, it's written in a symbolic way as well. So that um, again, that, that links in with the sacred sexuality side. So do you have any plans for further books now? Have you got the bug now? <laughs> now you've written two. Uh, well, um, I, I have a few ideas. I mean, I have got some jobs around the house. Having been Grand Treasurer General for 17 years, I've got big box files, 17 of them piled up. I've got to sort through what I need to keep and not keep of those because we've got a small house and you know, I need to make some room. I need to paint the bathroom, various things. But I'm afraid the writing bug stuck with me now. Um the two central characters, Ollie and Emma, in A Whisper and Silence, um, have turned out to be very popular with readers. Um, I've had some wonderful um, reviews on both books, but um, the, 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 the two main characters, especially in A Whisper and Silence, seem to have been you know, really taken to by, by the readers. As the author, having created them, I actually care about them quite a bit. I, I mean, that sounds a bit daft, but I, 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 I find myself thinking, I wonder what they're doing now. I wonder how they got through the winter. I wonder if they managed to avoid any typhoons. I wonder, I wonder, you know, and so I think perhaps I feel obliged to really carry on their story a little bit longer um, and develop that. It also occurred to me that being on an island like that, they obviously can't do um, um, initiations, do um, OTO initiating like that. It's just the two of them there. Although Ollie is extremely interested in the OTO and Crowley and so forth, he's only read about, he hasn't been initiated in the OTO at that stage, certainly. And so he can't initiate whatever on the island. So it just strikes me there's a lot more simple forms of magic they could do. They could do elemental magic, for example, which Ollie has actually read quite a bit about and has um, tried some of the some of the um, ritual magic, some of the magic, sorry, in, in the um, that magic. And um, also, of course, we got the elementals. I mean, what a wonderful place, a beautiful, beautiful white sanded uh, desert island to actually work with the elementals. So I think this is something which could appeal to people. When I'm writing for people who aren't necessarily a cult, so I'm going to be a bit careful. If I get too heavily into that, 
they'll find it very difficult to understand. That's why I try to keep it simple in a whisper in the science when I came to write to you about Crowley and Thelema, Holy, Holy Garden Angel and so forth. And it would have to be the same with this. But I think that they could, I don't know, I think they'd be quite fascinated to read about the elementals and about um, maybe Emma especially maybe having finding a link with, with the elementals. So I think that that is quite an interesting idea. So it might be something I actually look at further as I get time, perhaps um, start putting a synopsis together for it. Mm, that sounds good. Um, well, thank you so much for giving us some of your time, Trevor. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll have you back on soon, when, especially if you write a new book. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that you know, you, you both enjoyed the, the books you have read in there. And I hope that anyone out there does this. I've had some wonderful reviews. And I'm, I'm so grateful for those people who have given me good reviews because it, it does help so much in, in, in sales. I, I've never aimed to try and make money out of my writing. What I want to do is I want to leave something behind when I go. That's my main thing. And it's time for me to pass on. And I want to pass on to people as well these wonderful ideas, not just about playing things, but my own um, thoughts as well. And um, I want them to do it in a way where they can enjoy a really good story at the same time. So, as I say, anyone out there who hasn't read the books and um, does, I, I hope they thoroughly enjoy them. I hope they give feedback. And to any Thelemites out there, I must um, finish by saying, love is the law, love under will. Indeed. Yeah, and and, and thank you. Thank you, um, Mr. Gray, for your, your book and your time. And uh, another thing is, well, it, it, did, it made me laugh. I did have a, I did, I threw my head back in, in, in laughter at certain parts of it, as well as, Burn my toast on occasion because I couldn't. I couldn't. I I, couldn't I'm really. pleased you did that. That was deliberate. There is some, there is some humour, but also there's even more humour deliberately in um, in a whisper in the silence as well. Because I wanted to be a lighter read. So yes, it's meant to make people laugh. So I hope you had a good smile at certain points in that. Um, well, I, I threw my head back and 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 had a whole and a good old proper uh, proper laugh. Yeah, definitely. Does just good to do that, doesn't it? <laughs> Excellent. Especially with what's going on in the world at the moment. Yes, we all need it, don't we? And we are back. That was an interesting interview, wasn't it? It's, uh... Yeah, absolutely. And then I think the uh, I hope I hope that encourages people that actually make the time to read the book. And um, I I am, and I had got a great deal out of it. So I mean, I think you know, persist with the book, read the book, and um, you know, I, I, the the man who's got it one is the one I'm familiar with. So, mm. but uh, yeah, but I you know, I, I, I at some point will uh, certainly enjoy both of them. I think it's it's interesting, isn't it? You don't often see, especially philemic fiction, that often anymore, do you? It's more. I mean, you used to see a lot of it at one point. Um, I don't really see. I mean, this is the first one I can think of in recent memory. Actually, I don't know. Is it? That's a very important thing. I mean, would it be? I mean, I suppose that you could regard it as philemic. I mean, the the from manhood to god to it, it, it is. It it does it, it is a very broad it's a very broad thing. I mean, it, mm. um, it deals with a great deal of sort of different uh, alchemy and all these uh, emeticism. And, well, you can say the same stuff. about this book, actually. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I suppose that I suppose the underpinning, the core thing. I mean, it accumulate. I mean, the, the sort of, without giving any spoilers, uh, you know, the sort of climax of of the book is it. You know, focuses on Crowley in, in more recent history. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, and I guess the same with this. Although there is a 
full cast of other spiritual characters and and philosophies as well but uh yeah no it's always uh interesting to see these ideas presented through different mediums and i think this is what trevor does yeah, quite well and it? i think that was his intention i mean i still hope out that um mr gray will relent and do a sort of straight sort of you know philosophy or you know a, a straight essay time work and then um and um but yeah i mean it's it's uh it's got the kind of uh i mean it's got the the sort of lubricant of sort of fiction to sort of uh, wind you in thing, you know sort of get you sort of in, into the whole narrative so mm, interesting yeah it's interesting uh okay so we will be back next week but do not forget to join us on social media we're sitting now one word on um, most places um youtube in particular um, by the time maybe even by the time you hear this we'll be up to a thousand subscribers which is you know it's, it's a nice milestone and also maybe by the time this is up there should be some new video content which i've been filming um it's a uh, complimentary i would say to the podcast and the um and the site it's uh it's presented in a different format but it's similar in tone and topic um so yeah hopefully you can go and check that out i'll um obviously i'll mention that for definite when it goes up but you know we have a whole host of video stuff planned and uh regular video stuff planned to complement the podcast um and to complement the, the site so yeah hopefully we'll see you next time um well, i'm not sure who it's with um but we will uh we'll you know we'll see you there and uh see you next time bye-bye <laughs>